0: 1 Samuel chapter 16, we find this guy, Samuel, and Samuel is a prophet or a mouthpiece, kind of like a spokesperson for God. And and Samuel, at this time, you have to understand, in in the way that this kind of like culture worked, whoa, (laughs) (laughs) he, yeah, he, Samuel has like incredible authority, and so when Samuel comes around, one, he's the mouthpiece of God. And so God is speaking to Samuel, and Samuel's speaking to the people. So as, if he shows up, like if he showed up to this meeting right now, you'd be like, this has got to be serious. Because he doesn't go anywhere if God doesn't tell him, hey, go there and say this to those people. And, and, and the prophet had an extremely serious job. So if the prophet ever showed up and he said, thus says the Lord, this is what the Lord says, and it wasn't true or it, doesn't, it didn't come true, he'd be killed, right? So Samuel, very serious guy. So um, he has a tremendous amount of authority. He's regarded for his discernment, his wisdom, his ability to hear from God. So verse one, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way, because I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. So, again, kind of more backstory, and it would really help you out if you went back and just, you know, read a little bit of 1 Samuel and got Saul's story. But because Saul and Samuel are very close, and, and you have to listen to the language that God uses. I've provided for myself a king. In other words, I have a king that I've chosen, so you need to get over it, Samuel. I know Saul is your boy, and I know you're upset that, that Saul is not my choice, um, but, but fill your horn with oil. I have a mission for you. I've got something for you to do. And that really is the big difference, especially as we're going to see in, in the weeks to come that kind of play out in this narrative between Saul and David, is that Saul is, is the people's choice. For all the reason that people choose a leader or that people choose someone that they're going to follow. And and David is God's choice for all the reasons that God chooses the people that he wants to use and work in and through. Um, verse 2, but Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the, to, to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. And you are to anoint for me. The one that I indicate. So Samuel's very concerned one because he he has a great relationship and rapport with Saul. Two, he doesn't want to commit treason. Um, so he could be he could be killed by Saul by, for this. So he's in a pretty tricky spot here. So he's going to he's God says I want you to go and I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. And so Samuel's going, but he doesn't know exactly what he's going to do. So verse verse 4 um, Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled, trembled when they met him, and they asked, "Do you come in peace?" And Samuel replied, "Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice the Lord. Consecrate yourselves, clean yourselves up, and come to the, sacri- come to the sacrifice with me." And then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to sacrifice. And when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, "Surely the Lord's anointed stands, before, stands here before the Lord." But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. Again, tall people got a good gig going here. Or his height, for I have rejected him. Um, So Eliab shows up, and and this is exactly, again, like this is kind of how it works in that culture. It's like, oh, this guy totally looks like this is the next king. He's tall. He's got long hair, probably, right? He looks like Saul. This is the guy. This is the guy. And God says, no, that's not who I'm after. So look at, look at that last part of verse seven. This is, if you, if you highlight or make notes or anything like that in your Bible, this is an incredible verse to highlight. This is what God says to Stanley. He says, um, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at an outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God says, don't look merely on the outside. Don't look merely at the externals that people kind of prop up. And that's how we make judgments or that's how we make valuations on people based on kind of like these externals that they kind of adorn themselves with. Or don't, In other words, don't, don't judge people the same way that the, the world judges people. The, this verse gives us tremendous insight into the heart of God because the thing that sets David apart and will always set David apart is his heart. Even in the moments where we're going to look at David and we're going to see in the stories like, man, how in the world could you do that? Like you have this amazing relationship with God, but yet you go and do this completely ungodly thing. But even in the midst of that, what always sets David apart is his heart. David's not a perfect man. We're going to see it very clearly. He doesn't always do it the right way or he doesn't always make the right choices or honor God in everything that he does. But yet he is the one man in scripture that is described as the man who is after God's own heart. He, he's, he's not perfect, but he is sincerely committed to the Lord. And he has a love for God that is pure and rich and real. He doesn't always get it right, but he does have a heart that is inclined towards God. And God, of course, is able to see this. Look at verse eight. Then Jesse called Abinadab... And he had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. And Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? And Jesse said, well, there is still the youngest, but he is tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him, because we will not sit down until he arrives. So culturally, it's kind of hard for us to understand what exactly is going on here. But there's something that's extremely significant happening here. Because for him, for Samuel to come, and not to choose one of the older sons is very significant. Because in this culture youth was not something that was necessarily prized youth especially in in leadership now these boys don't really know what's going on samuel barely knows what's going on but still for all of the sons to show up, and, and for the older one to go first, for whatever Samuel wanted, he certainly would want one of the older sons, if not the oldest son. So to wait around for, for the younger son, that's why Jesse doesn't even, he doesn't even call the youngest son out of being a shepherd, out of watching the sheep. He, he doesn't even bother with them, because whatever it is that Samuel, this important man of God, this prophet wants, there's no way he wants to waste his time with, with his youngest son. So, it's a, what's happening here, we have to really pay attention to this, because what God is doing is God is stepping into the established culture of the society, and he's completely turning it upside down, which, by the way, is what God is always doing. Because now there's this kid, and it, it doesn't seem like this kid has any significance. He, he doesn't even get called to the meeting. He certainly should not be king, but we're going to see in a moment that God chooses him. And, 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 it, and it's how God, how God does it. So, Whoever is on the margins, whoever's on the outside, God brings them close. Whoever are the ones who are on the outskirts of society or whoever are the ones who are going to get kicked, picked last and kickball, whoever are the ones who are like, yeah, we don't even think about them. We don't even consider them. We just kind of leave them out there to do what they're doing. They're lower class. They're impoverished. They're immigrants. Those are the ones that God says, no, no. I'm bringing them from the margin and I'm bringing them close. I'm bringing bringing them to the table. That's exactly what he does. Look in verse 12. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. If you're reading from the NIV, and I'll talk about this in a second, it, it, it has a very interesting description about him. It says that he had light eyes, so like lightly colored eyes, and his appearance was, was ruddy. And, and that's not a word that we use very often. But It might say that he, he's, he's ruddy. So, so here he is, he's, he's glowing with health. He had a fine appearance, handsome features. David, a good looking guy. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. Now, don't get it twisted, because God is not choosing David based on his appearance. I know I just went through this whole thing. God doesn't look on the outside like man does. He looks at the heart, and then David shows up, and he's like a stud. So, he is a good look. He is a good-looking man, um, which gets David in a lot of trouble because he's good-looking, and David likes women, and women like David. And you're gonna we're gonna see that later in the story. It turns out to be a huge problem for David. Um, and he is beautiful, and that's not why God choose him. If, if your version says that he's, he's ruddy, what that means is it, he has these kind of like reddish features, right? So it, it doesn't mean he looks like Conan O'Brien. He is not Irish, but he's like a, he's a dark-skinned Middle Eastern kid. He has like reddish brown hair. Light eyes, so and to look like that in this culture, and for him to look like that, that was a sign of virility, that was a sign of strength, it was a sign of youth, right? So David just kind of has this very unique look for a for a Middle Eastern young um, young young man. He he looks, he's like a symbol of youth and vitality. Look at verse, uh, look at verse thirteen. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Really significant verse here in verse 13. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David, and Samuel left and then went to Rome. So it's important to note here that at, at no point when, when Samuel anoints and prays over David does he say a word about him being king, right? So he, Sam, they don't go through this formal deal, like he doesn't like, raise a banner that says, all hail King David. It's not that. God just says, that's the guy. The one that no one else considered, the youngest, the good-looking one, anoint him with oil, um, and so and and he does, and and that's important because I I really don't think anyone else aside from Samuel really knows that David is gonna be the next king. I mean his and and, and and you know this because in the next chapter we're gonna look at this story where David's brothers are fighting on the front lines and David rolls up and his brothers are just like punking him like they just like treat him, you know, like he's just like their kid brother. Um, because no one really no one really knows that David is the heir apparent uh, to be to be the king or he's anointed here as king of, of Israel. I think all they really know is that God has anointed him and chosen him in a particular way but they don't really know exactly what that means and and I really don't think that David at this point knows exactly what it means I don't think David is self-aware that at this point in his life he's now taking a step towards towards kingship the the anointing is about the spirit of the Lord descending on David and it's going to rest mightily on him skip down to verse Seventeen, so um, verse fourteen, fifteen, and sixteen are the fourteen in particular is a very odd verse, um, and scholars have different kind of ways to interpret that, and it creates some tension we 're not going to get in tonight and, and sometimes tension is with the text, sometimes the tension is with us, and sometimes the tension is God. Um, I know I'm di- that wasn 't helpful for anyone, so just take that That's, you get what you pay for here at seven ten so um, but suffice to say, Saul now begins to experience a real separation from the, from the favor of God and, and in many ways is, is tormented. So um, we get a little bit of insight on what to do here. Um, if you ever feel yourself tormented um, by a spirit, you, you play some music. So verse 17, Saul says to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. And one of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre or guitar. He is a, he's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. And then that, some of you ladies are like, that's exactly what I'm looking for. He just like completely described my next future man. Um, then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So this is great. Like David, he gets called up. He's standing with his brothers. Brothers are like, what the heck are you doing here? Samuel takes out of the horn, pours it on his head. He's like, this is great. Now i got to go back to work with the oil all over me. And he just goes right back to the sheep. It's like, that was a super weird afternoon. Um, verse, verse 20, so Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son, David, to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service, and Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers, and then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, allow David to remain in my service, for I'm pleased with him. So the thing that we need to um, just understand the most, and this is kind of where we'll spend the rest of our time tonight as we unpack David's kind of origin story, is that David is not auditioning to be king. So at, at, at no point um, is he planning or strategizing to be king. David, is a, he is a shepherd that is completely unaware of what people might be saying about him in any category. When, when he's out in the field writing these amazing worship songs and he plays his instruments, he, he's not playing for other people. He's not trying to get discovered. He's not trying to make a name for himself. He's not trying to get signed. He's not getting recognized or praised for his giftedness. He doesn't know that he's writing these songs that are one day going to be put in a book called Psalms and that they're going to be sung and taught thousands of years after his death. David is not thinking about anything else other than sheep and God. That's his life. No one knows about his gifts. He's not going to make it on the Hot 100, right? He's not going to be a YouTube sensation. What up? It's your boy, David. Got another song I wrote for you. Like, he's, this, is not, this is not what David's life is about, right? He's trying to worship God. He's trying to keep himself and the sheep from being eaten by a lion or a bear. That is David's life. That's what he does. That's what he's been given. He's not up for a promotion. He's just simply trying to be faithful and honor God in the place that God has put him. He says, God gave me these songs, so I'll sing them to him. God gave me this instrument, so I'll play it to him. God gave me these sheep so I'm going to do my best to take care of them. This is, this is so important for us because we live in a world, and especially at your particular age stage and life stage, where everything, and you, and you're, you have like so much pressure on you, everything pushes you towards this kind of upward mobility. And, and there's always this assumption that we always need to be promoting ourselves or promoting our abilities or promoting our gifts or promoting just promoting us. We need to find a way to, to get our name out there. We need to find a way to be d- d- discovered, right? I, I believe that like, our number one private pastime is to try to get noticed. And I'm going to sound like an old man, get off my lawn. But um, if I had to have an exhibit or an example of that, that our number one private pastime is to get noticed, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, right? What are those things all designed for? For you to be able to get you out there, so that other people can tell you how much they like you, and we love it, well, all all of us. I'm not. I, I'm on social media, so you could point a bunch of fingers at me too, right? So, but 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 we get that, and and when when David does eventually become king. You, we have to note the fact that he's really not trying to climb the ladder. He's not striving for political adv- advancement. And, and the fascinating thing um, about David's story, and especially in this particular moment, is that Christians can judge success precisely the same way that everybody in the world does. How do you know when something is successful? Well, when there's, there's more. Well, more what? Right. When there's more people, when there's more money, when there's more fame. when when there's more success, when there's more influence, when there's more size, when there's more strong, when there's more beauty, when there's more brains, right? When there's just more. If you have more, you are blessed. If people notice you, if you are influential, God's blessing is on you. And if those things aren't happening in your life, then that must mean that somehow God, the favor of God is not on you. And we think like that. We look at our own life and we think, okay, well, there isn't more happening. There isn't more happening professionally. There isn't more happening educationally. There isn't more happening relationally. There isn't more happening, just there isn't more recognition over me and over the things that I'm doing. And in our kind of pathology, we can think, well, that must be that God is not pleased with me or that God has forgotten about me or that God just is not interested in me. And and the real the real tragedy, honestly, is that there are there are Christian conversations that back that line of thinking up, and it makes more sons and daughters of God further and further and further uh, uh, takes them further and further away from God, and makes them more and more insecure in their relationship with god and and honestly, this is not just something that would happen to people who are, are sitting out there. this is, is probably one of the greatest things that I had to learn. Um, in, in in being a pastor. I, I, I came from a place eleven years ago um, where I my wife and I we just started this college ministry in, in um in our in our house and I had zero idea what I'm doing. You're like, you yeah, haven't come very far. But I had no idea like what I was doing. The only thing I knew is that like man I really care about college students and young adults not absolutely like trashing their life the way that I did in my like kind of years from eighteen to Twenty-five, you know, and I just—I really want to stand in the gap and just say you, your life does not have to be perpetually waking up from the morning after. Or, the, 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 you know, you can, you can always, whatever. Jesus is better. That's what I was trying to. I, that's all I knew. Okay, um, and I just thought, what, what is the way that I? So I, there were at the church that I was working at, there were these three guys probably the biggest dorks i ever met in my life, but I'm like, I'm going to love these dudes. And so they would come over, and we would eat pizza, and we would just open up the Bible and be like, hey, I think this is what it says. What do you guys think? And we're like, ah. And so... But it, but it, it's just what it was, and um, people would just come over dinner. We'd talk about, we'd talk about Jesus, and it started to grow, you know, a little bit. I think at the the biggest it might have like ever got was maybe like fifty people or so, um, and we did all kinds of just like goofy things, like we would go whitewater rafting, and um, we'd go to these theme parks, we'd have game nights. I mean, it was just so like corny, super cheesy, but it was really, really fun. And uh, we had this 15-passenger van, and I just would drive all these college kids all over. And we would just, that's what we do. We'd hang out. We'd have a good time together. Um, We'd talk about Jesus. We'd eat a lot of pizza, apparently. Um, So, and then I had an opportunity to come out here after I I did that for about three or four years. And and then I had an opportunity to come out here. And at the time, um, this ministry, 710 was like the only kind of young adult college ministry in the valley. Um, so I know there's a lot of big churches that are around, uh, people have different things kind of going on. Um, but this 7:10 times, there was nothing, there was nothing, nothing like it. And so, um, we met in the chapel, which is the building at the very front of this campus. And so there were 300, 350 something kind of college students or young adults that were in it. And it was just like, it was awesome. I mean, and uh, Tyler, who's uh, a pastor here that I lead with, and Tim who's another pastor here that I lead with. They were the kind of leadership in it. My friend Ricardo, who's a um, pastor at Redemption Tempe, was in it. There was this gal named Danielle who was awesome. This guy, Matt, who's a worship leader at Gateway. We just had this like big team, a lot of stuff. I mean, like. It was like laser light show, and I mean, I'm seriously, I'm coming from like small town Baptist church, this place Tallahassee, Florida. Who me and Shannon are the only ones in here who could find it on the map. I mean, it's just just a small little southern town, and I just, you know, I coming from just dorky, you know, whatever. And I, I landed at that thing and I was like, this is amazing. I can't believe it. And I get to participate in this. I mean, I just like thought I had died and, and, and absolutely gone to heaven. Um, six months kind of after I got here, Tyler transitioned out to a different role. Tim had transitioned into a different role. And so now I got to lead this ministry, and uh, I was just, like, pinching myself. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. Um, kind of sh- real shortly after that, Ricardo, who was in there with me, he transitioned out. And so now it's just down to me, um, this gal, Danielle, who's great, and, and Matt, who's also great. Um, but something started to happen in the ministry as well, too. So, you know, I'm just, like, kind of really learning how to do this and learning how to teach and learning how to lead and learning how to be a pastor. I mean, I got, like, my dream job going. This is great, like, awesome ministry. Uh, And then people just start to, like, leave. Like, not just the people who are, like, leading it, but, like, the people who are, like, coming to it. And uh, when you're in, like, a really big room and there's a lot of empty you know, like a lot of empty chairs, you really start to feel. When there's a little bit of people in a really big room, <laughs> it gets pretty awkward pretty quick. And I'm watching this thing just kind of like dwindle and dwindle You know, Danielle left. Matt left. Um, Jed's older brother, Ben, came on and he served. And Ben, at the time, I think had just graduated high school, and he really didn't want to do it. And I was a really, really terrible leader. And so, um, Ben was like kind of angry, kind of sad, kind of just thought I was a joke and he was right and then I'm like super just anxious because like I'm literally killing a ministry (laughs) like I'm like choking it to death somehow and I don't know what to do to fix it um and he was just like well it doesn't matter you know we should just shut it down anyway and I was like (laughs) ah so I'm like dying like this thing that this dream like this dream I'm like killing my own dream I couldn't believe it and uh, I just really kind of was going like further and further and further and further into this, into this pit. The ministry was getting smaller and smaller. In fact, there's an elder here, this guy named Jerry. He gave me this book um, called um, "Liberating Yourself from Ministry Success," which is like another way to say <laughs> you suck. <laughs> I was like, "Thank you. That is so such like great timing, right?" And and but here's the biggest thing that was like killing me. If I sat here and I told you I was just absolutely heartbroken that I wasn't like effectively preaching the, or like reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ and if I sat here and I told you like my heart was just breaking for these people for this generation that wasn't hearing the gospel that would be one thing but my heart was breaking for me because I thought that I was headed towards being a nobody that I would be Stuck in nowhere land, and that I wouldn't be recognized, and that I wouldn't get like the accolades, or that I wouldn't get like the um, you know, like the praise of people for the ability to lead, or the ability to teach, or the ability to whatever. And I and I really did. I just kind of spiraled down and down and down and down and down, just constantly like not getting enough attention, not getting enough attention, not getting enough attention. Um, But I tell all that whole story because I think some of you in here, you might kind of feel like um, things are not really going the way that you had hoped that they would go. Like you're not really getting right now like the attention or the approval um, or the recognition that you thought you'd have in any particular category in your life at this at this phase, and I believe like what if that's you, I believe what God is doing is what God did in, in me. That was extremely extremely important and very difficult, and I'm so thankful for it because God was teaching me the reward and the blessing of obscurity. When I was in that little Baptist church in Tallahassee, and I'm driving around the southeast, my 15 passenger fan with the Goon Patrol. Um, and and when 710 began to shrink i i assumed that obscurity or nobody knowing who i was what was a curse and i wrongly assumed i must be I must be doing something wrong, or I must be the wrong guy for this, or, or um, I, I, I must just be, this must just be a wrong fit, or maybe, you know, uh, there's somebody else who's causing this, and that's not right, and kind of make a ton of e- e- excuses. And, you know, when that starts to happen, you start to look around, and you're like, well, I'm smarter than that person. I'm better at this than that person, um, and, 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 and I, I uh, how come they seem to be flourishing, and I feel stuck, and if you ever felt stuck, maybe some of you in your room would feel stuck tonight. If you ever feel like you should be getting noticed or appreciated for the work that you're doing, but it seems that no one's on your, uh, uh, even on your radar. Now, like no, one's even, no one even knows what you're, what you're doing. That line of thinking is an absolute prison. And, and it's such a vicious cycle, and it never lets you win. I, 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 when I'm reading through these notes, I had this line, and... and this was years ago. I, I kind of wrote this down. I said that our fear of not mattering much has the potential to pull us away from what matters most. Our fear, this like, uh, now it's FOMO, right? So fear of missing out. Like, um, our fear of not mattering much. Like, oh, I'm not going to matter. No one's going to no know about me. No one's going to know what I do. I'm, I'm not going to get recognition. I'm not going to get approval. That our fear of not mattering much has the potential to pull us away from what matters most. Those relationships that I had with those, with those college kids in, in, in Tallahassee are still to this day some of my most favorite people I've ever met on planet Earth. The things that I could have learned and should have learned in my early, in my early days here, I completely just whiffed on. I completely, I completely missed. It was a huge waste of time because I was, I was afraid that I wasn't going to matter. And so I missed out on what mattered the most. Comparison is an absolute trap. You know that, everybody in this room. You, you know that at least mentally. And you know it experientially. It doesn't stop us from going back to it, but we know it's true. Comparison, when we compare ourselves to others, it's an absolute trap. It's a toxic practice and and you have to know that look no matter what it is that you do in life there will always be someone that does it better than you this is a real pep talk tonight for you guys but 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 that is that's that's the truth and and we love to think about how we're doing compared to other people we love to measure our successes against other people's unfortunately Christians are notorious for this right We want to talk about somebody else's failure. We kind of mask it in like, well, I'm just telling you so that you can pray about them. But we're really just trying to get somebody else's failure out there because it makes us feel better about our own. We love to gossip, right? But the problem is that there comes along with all this, if we feel like we're not noticed, we kind of get this kind of like depression going. Like some of you, you're in jobs right now and it absolutely blows your mind that there are people who get promoted ahead of you. There are some of you in the room, you actually know, you know things about your supervisor, about your manager, and if their superior, knew, then there's no way that they would have a job, and it drives you crazy. Some of you, you're in families or in like circles of friends, and you just can't fathom why this person gets more attention and more recognition than you do in that particular circle of people. Now, all these things, they fall in line with the idea that obscurity is, is a curse. Obscurity is not a curse. It's not a symptom of you doing something wrong. The fact that you do not feel adequately appreciated or acknowledged or promoted does not mean that you're doing something wrong. Because it could be that you are like David, that you've been given a great talent, you've been given a right ability, you've been given a passion for something, and it hasn't been discovered. And if that's you, it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. Because our culture is not evolving into one that appreciates things that truly matter. Our culture is not evolving into one that appreciates things like wisdom or character. I mean, do you really think in our culture the things that are most popular are the things that are the best? At our culture, the Kardashians are popular. Why? For being popular, we don't know. We really have, we have no idea, right? So do, do, you, do you really think... Do you, do you really think the things that are incredibly popular are, are, are the best things? We're still envious of them, right? But they're, but they're not the best things. We live in a world that would choose Saul but reject Jesus. So what does that tell you about our kind of corporate common wisdom as people? We live in a world that over and over again would choose King Saul. He's handsome. He's tall. Great hair. We want him. Jesus, the king of love, steps into the creation. He's rejected, despised, murdered. One of the reasons I think God anointed David as king is because David, he really wasn't caught up with the fame and the recognition game. He he really didn't care about his music getting hot. He didn't care about networking the right people. David was content, which is something that eludes most of us. He, he was content to live and work in a field where no one's paying attention to him, um, and he's just going to live with a pure heart before God. This really, these are like, where we're seeing David right now, these are like the golden years for David, trust me. We're, we're going to see as his story progresses, and we're going to see that where we see him right now, he's a shepherd boy, he plays his instrument, he loves God, and he writes music for him, and he just does the best with what God has given him right there. These are like the golden days for, for David. David is just doing what God has given to him. Now listen, this is going to sound like I'm really down on ambition and goals and trying hard, <laughs> and some of you are hoping that I'm saying that. I'm not, because I have I have vision. I have ambition. I still have goals, right, um, but I, but I think we would all do well to approach our lives with the same perspective that David has here. As long as you think that obscurity is a curse from God, that he doesn't love you, that he's not paying attention to you, that he's off the job, you will miss what God wants to build in you in those times of obscurity. As long as you think that obscurity, no one knowing about who you are or what you're doing, working in small, unnoticed ways, working in small, unnoticed places, as long as you think that is a curse from God, you will miss on what God is, wants to teach you and build into you in those times. When I was, um, probably from the time I was like 13 and really well past college, I worked for my dad. My dad is a construction company. And he did pro- predominantly uh, structural resurfacing repair, which basically means he fixed the foundations of buildings. Um, it's, it, the work is really tough. It sucks. Um, it's not very glamorous at all. And uh, the worst part is no one really actually sees what you do because they're going to put like a building on top of what you've done. But my dad is so great when we go when I, when I go home and I go back to these different places, all these places that have been built on top of the foundation that he fixed or worked on. He looks around at all these buildings and he he can totally see like just past the building that's been built on top of it. And he knows... I did really good work at the foundation there so that that building can be what it is. You you can't see the work that was done in the foundation, but it's absolutely essential to that building standing there and and being a successful building. And it's the same thing with with us. When you don't have a strong foundation, the rest of the building is not going to be strong. And some of you, you're really, really concerned about what your building is going to look like, but your foundation is in shambles. You want, you want a building that is cool, you want a building that's well-liked, you want a building that's respected, you want a building that's popular, you want a building that everybody wants to be in and around, um, but you're not willing to put the work into the foundation. Or, God's trying to do some foundation work in your life right now, and it's difficult, so you're fighting God on it. You're being obedient, yeah, but you're not really seeing the immediate results, so you're kind of giving up on God's way of living. God's trying to do some foundational work on you. You're saying, okay, I'm going to kind of go through this, but if I don't get the relationship that I want soon, then I'm going to quit. Or if I don't get the job that I want soon, I'm going to quit. Or if I don't get the success that I want soon, if I don't get the recognition that I want soon, I'm going to quit. Because it seems like all the other people who are taking shortcuts shortcuts, and these kind of foundational things, they seem to be getting like all like the all the good things, the things that I want right now. And what a lot of you are doing is you are, tr- you are trading the ultimate for the immediate. You are trading what you ultimately want for what you can immediately see and experience. And that will come back to get you. That will come back to get you. God is doing foundational work in you right now and it could be happening in obscurity and that does not mean that he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean that he has forgotten about you and it doesn't mean that it is a curse on your life. It means that he is laser focused in on you and he has you in that quiet, still spot so that he can intimately whisper to you that he loves you, that he's over you and that he's watching you. And he wants you to be in that quiet and that still spot so that you can do the same back to him. If, if you, if you, if you are, are, are not patient in, in these moments, you will you're, understand, if you're, if you're not patient in these moments, you're gonna miss out on something that's very important. And, and what's, very, what's very important is that building character takes time. Becoming popular, being liked does not. Building character, becoming the man or woman after God's own heart, it goes unnoticed here on earth. But being popular, whatever, only matters here on earth. Your character and your devotion to God is what makes you useful in the kingdom of God. Not your title, not your position, not your success, not your achievements. Again, I'm not against those things. But if you're simply living for those things, you'll find out just how hollow they are. If you live to be noticed, you'll never be noticed enough. If you live to know God, you'll always be amazed by how much you're loved. I think God let me go through all those years of my ideals about ministry, um, and I realize that's probably irrelevant to a lot of you, you know, but just kind of plug in your version of success or lack of success. Um, so that I could have a greater appreciation of ministry, so I could get greater love for you, a deeper love for him, a greater joy in my life as a, as a, as a pastor. Because when you're driven by getting the life that you want, you're going to use people. And, and some of you, you've already been victim to that. Like You've already kind of attached yourself to somebody who they're just only out after what they want. And you've kind of been chewed up and followed that. Um, but when you live for God fully where he has you, you'll learn to love people because you'll learn how much you're, you're loved by God. So now, and with this we'll end. Um, I don't want you to walk away from here and be like, okay, I'm in obscurity and I just got to suck it up because one day I'm going to be king. Okay, Simbo, not everybody, not everybody gets to be king, right? The problem with the average person is that they really don't think they're average. In Hebrews chapter 11, there is this kind of hall of fame of followers of God. And as you read through Hebrews 11, you just see all these names, you see all these stories, and it's really pretty amazing. But there's this, there's this line that's, that's really pretty uh, dynamic. And it says that they all went to their graves not receiving what was promised. They saw it or greeted it from afar off, the scripture says. So God is calling you to be faithful and to love him like crazy where you are right now. This is what this is what David knew and was absolutely gripped with. He's like I will love God with everything I have and I will be fully devoted to him. And if there's anything we learn about the life of David, it's that. It's that that is what we want to say. That's what we want to say over our life. Um in in Psalm chapter 27, David writes this. He's like that God calls me to seek his face and David says that's what I seek. I want to seek your face. I want, I want to seek to dwell with you all the days of my life, to gaze upon your beauty, Lord. I, I want, I, God would, was speaking to the depths of David's heart. And, 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 and God is doing the same. He's, he's calling us, he's saying, Look, seek me, seek me with, with all your heart. That's what, that's what I'm wanting out of you. I, I don't want you to approach me like discipline, like it's more push-ups or sit-ups to do. He, he's saying, I, I want it to be a, re, a response. And that really is the thing that sets David apart. He was overwhelmed at the massiveness of God's love for him and the smallness of his own life. And he embraced those two things beautifully. The massiveness of God, the smallness of who he was. And David, like when he was there, when he was living there, that was, that, was the, that was the sweet spot. That was the absolute sweet spot. Ultimately, I love the story of David because it pushes us forward to a greater David, a king who would put on obscurity for the sake of those who had rebelled and sinned against him. And he would persevere in the wilderness. He would be fully devoted to his father. He would be rejected by man and he would bear on his shoulders the wrath that was due us. And he now reigns on high as king of kings. And his name is Jesus and his plan is perfect. His timing is perfect. His attention towards you is not lacking. His love for you is super abundant and his grace will sustain you in your time of obscurity. And what we want to learn from David is that we just want to trust him the way that David did. Let's pray. God, thank you again uh, just for your word and and for the story of David and God let us um let us embrace God just where you have placed us in life and God let us uh rest in your timing and your plan and your purpose and uh God ultimately your love for us and um God there are um some of us in the room who just feel like we have been abandoned in certain categories in our life and God it might be relationally it might be Professionally, It might, um, God, it might be a whole host of things. Um, but God, I just pray tonight, um, God, even as we lift our voices and start to sing these songs to you, God, that you might speak to us by your spirit, and God, just let us know that you're with us, God, that you're for us, that you'll never leave us, that you'll never forsake us, that you'll never abandon us, and God, that there's nothing that can separate us, even in these moments of obscurity. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.